Right, good morning. If you would please turn your Bibles to Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 6. Uh, I also want to say uh, today's passage is a, a difficult one. And I have spent, I've had the privilege and opportunity to spend most of this week thinking about it. And I've spent years thinking about it. Uh, but in your case, maybe not. Uh, and so if you'd like to uh, think about this text and warnings in the New Testament some more in general, I want to highly commend to you a book that will be helpful to you. Uh, the book is called Run to Win the Prize. Very simple, Run to Win the Prize. It's a short and simple treatment of this and other texts in the New Testament. And the author's name is Thomas Schreiner. Normally I would hold the book up. Uh, they're out of copies here, but I believe there are copies in Dubai. And if you ask our sister Annie uh, to get them for you, then uh, she, she knows exactly which book it is and she will be able to help with that. Run to Win the Prize by Thomas Schreiner. With that, uh, let's turn our attention to God's Word, and if you would pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we thank you for your Word, that your Word is living and active and penetrating and always accomplishes your purposes. We thank you that your Word is clear and reveals to us all that we need for life and godliness. So we pray as we come to this text this morning that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that which is pleasing in your sight, that you would cause us to hold on in hope to our Lord Jesus Christ and keep on in the Christian life by your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's a struggle that many Christians have. Uh, many Christians, especially who are new in the faith, growing in the faith, have come to this point of struggle. Many of you probably at some point or the other in your Christian life have struggled in this way. I remember uh, several years ago in, in a church, local church, where I had served as an elder, uh, we had a couple who were non-Christians and they came to saving faith in Christ. The, the Lord did a marvelous work in their lives. First, the husband was saved, uh, and he was brought to faith in Christ. And then uh, soon after that, over a short period of time, the wife came to faith in Christ, and we rejoiced with them. Uh, I remember them sharing their testimony before the congregation and being baptized, joining our local church. There was great joy, uh, many tears of joy. Uh, and then I had the joy and privilege of being part of their life group, even seeing how God was working in this uh, couple who were new believers, seeing them grow in the faith. And then one day I got a phone call uh, from the wife. And she was very alarmed, very disturbed, uh, quite anxious about something. And so I asked her, what's going on? Uh, you know, what are you struggling with? And she said, uh, Aubrey, I'm worried, you know, God has really changed my life. I'm worried that, you know, I fall into sin sometimes and maybe I have lost my salvation. Is that possible? Or maybe I'm, I'm afraid that even if I haven't, then I might lose my salvation and I won't be saved in the end. And I, I pressed in some more and she said, well, I read this passage that really frightened me and it was, the text that we're looking at this morning. She pointed me to Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 4 to 8. 
Now, this is a very difficult text. It's one of the harder texts in the New Testament. It's a, a text that has puzzled and challenged many Bible interpreters for centuries. And we should also note that it's a passage on which many respected and faithful interpreters of the Bible have disagreed. So as we look at Hebrews 6 this morning, I'm going to do my best, by God's grace and help, uh, to help us clearly see whom the author is speaking to and what he is saying as he issues this earnest and fierce warning. We're going to try to understand what the text says. And as we understand God's word, this text, my hope is that our hearts would be sobered and warned by seeing how terrifying it is to turn away from Christ. Uh, so that then we would hold on to him in hope all the more and cling to our Lord Jesus. Right? So with that, let's read the text. Hebrews 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So we're going to ask and answer four questions as we go through our passage this morning. Four questions to help us understand what the text is saying, and once it's clear what it is saying, then we will seek to apply it to our hearts. So question number one, what is the context? What is the context in which these words are written? Now, many of you by this point, we've spent a few months in Hebrews, you should be very familiar with the context of the letter to the Hebrews, which is a letter, but is more properly was originally a sermon that was preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation of Jewish Christians, they had been Jews, they'd been Hebrews, and then they'd come to faith in Christ. And this congregation of Jewish Christians had grown weary and sluggish. Uh, they were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and to go back to Judaism. Uh, they had faced many afflictions and trials and persecutions for following Jesus. And so they were tempted to take the easy way out. Uh, to go back to the Jewish religion where they would not face such per persecutions and afflictions. And so the pastor is writing this to remind them to fix their eyes on Jesus, that he is better, that he is the fulfillment of the Jewish religion, and to press on them the urgency of holding on in hope to Christ alone, because apart from Christ, there is no salvation. You might remember the immediate context. Notice that verse 4 begins with the word for. For it is impossible, which means what is said today follows from what was said last week. And you might remember from last week, the author rebukes these Christians. Uh, he said, you've grown sluggish. They had grown sluggish. They started going backwards in their faith. They have gone back 
to the elementary principles of the faith. They have to learn the ABCs once again. He says, you need milk and not meat. I need to convince you all over again of the basics. And if this is your condition, that you're sluggish and immature, then that's dangerous for you. We saw that last week. He urges them to press on towards maturity and not remain as infants. And now we're seeing why that is critical, right? Four is at the beginning of verse four, connects this to last week by showing us why it is critical not to remain sluggish, not to remain as infants. Because sluggishness and immaturity leads to dangerous consequences. Today's text shows us what those consequences are. Like I said last week, falling back into immaturity, sluggishness, infancy will lead to falling away. That's the argument here. So that's the answer to our first question. What is the context? Second question, who is the passage speaking about? Who is the passage speaking about? So if you look at verses 4 and 5, you see what it says concerning these persons. It says, this is the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, one interpretation, uh, which is a very respectable interpretation, and it is taken by uh, many Uh, Bible readers and scholars and pastors in what we would call the Reformed or Calvinist uh, stream, this interpretation says that these verses are talking about not true Christians, but fake Christians, or those who were almost Christians or false Christians, those who are members of the church but don't truly know Christ. Now, I used to hold... Uh, this view myself. I've since become unpersuaded of it, and I'll show you why. And and you can see the logic there, right? Uh, These interpreters believe that all true believers will persevere till the end, and that if you're truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. And then they look in this text and say, well, this is clearly warning about falling away, falling away from Christ and losing your salvation. Therefore, they'll say, it cannot be speaking about true Christians It has to be speaking about those who might be almost Christian or false Christians. And like I said, it's a respectable interpretation. In fact, there are other passages of the New Testament that they will point to uh, that they say shows the same thing. So for instance, you might uh, think of the uh, parable of the sower, where there are seed that is sown on different kinds of soil, some on rocky ground, uh, some by the wayside, some among thorns, uh, and then you know, those which are uh, quickly take root, but then they eventually wither and die, or those that are eaten by the birds. But the only uh, seed that is true, that really does take true root, are those that are landing in good soil. And those we would say are true believers, the others who fell away are not. They were never truly saved. Or uh, they will point to, you know, passages like 1 John uh, chapter 2 and verse 19, which says, you know, some people went out from us, but they were never really of us because if they were really of us, they would have stayed among us and not gone out. In other words, those who departed from the faith were never truly believers in the first place. They were never truly saved. So that's what these interpreters will say. They'll say that this is talking about false Christians, 
fake Christians, almost Christian, nominal Christians, people who become members of the church, but they don't truly know the Lord personally. Well, I want to say, I am not persuaded of that view. I find it unconvincing. And I think what's happening there is people are taking a, a theological viewpoint and forcing it onto the text. So let's look at five phrases, the five phrases that the author uses here to describe these people in verses 4 and 5. Look at what the author is saying. It is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened. The text says that they had been enlightened. Now, this word enlightened is the word that is used to describe conversion. It's describing the experience of being brought from darkness to light, from death to life. It's describing the experience of hearing the word of God and, and God shines the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus into our dead hearts and brings us to saving faith. I once was blind, but now I see, been brought from darkness to light. In fact, the author uses this word again in chapter 10 and verse 32, and he says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great suffering for the sake of Jesus. So there it clearly refers to conversion. This word enlightened is talking about a conversion experience, being brought from darkness to light, having your eyes opened to the light of the glory of God. Next phrase, he says, they have tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what is the heavenly gift? What is it that we receive as a gift from above, from heaven, from God alone, by God's grace? It's salvation. It's being saved from our sins, being brought from darkness to light, being saved from our sins, being brought into the knowledge of God, into the kingdom of God. That's the heavenly gift. It comes from heaven. Salvation is God's plan. It's God's initiative. He accomplishes it through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives salvation to us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it says they've tasted the heavenly gift, which is to say they have fully experienced this salvation. Tasted there does not mean that they just, you know, sipped it and spat it out or something. In fact, the, the author uses this exact same word for tasted back in chapter 2 and verse 9 where he says, Jesus tasted death. And obviously we understand and we know when Jesus tasted death, he fully experienced it. He died. Jesus really and truly died. He experienced death. That's what it means to say Jesus tasted death. And so here when it says, they have tasted the heavenly gift, that means they have fully experienced salvation. They've come to saving faith. Well, if you're still not convinced, look at the third description that the author gives. They have been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. If you are not convinced until now, this is absolutely clear. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Friends, sharing in the Holy Spirit, becoming a participant in the Holy Spirit, experiencing the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, is the defining mark of a Christian in the New Testament. 
only true believers have the Holy Spirit of God, share in the Spirit of God. Think of Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 where the Apostle Paul says that if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Him. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, then you're a believer. That's the defining mark of being a Christian, that you receive the Spirit of God. He's the one who brings us from darkness to light, and He's the one who dwells in every Christian. The word shared again, the author has used before in chapter 2 and verse 14, where he talks about Jesus sharing in flesh and blood, which is to say Jesus was fully human. Jesus really shared in flesh and blood. And so the same way, if you share in the Holy Spirit, that means you're a believer, you're a Christian. That's absolutely clear from the rest of the New Testament. The remaining two phrases here make it even more clear. They tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. To taste the goodness of the word of God means you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have ingested God's word. His word is the seed that causes us to be born again to an imperishable hope. His word has taken root in their hearts. They've tasted its goodness. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? What is the power of the age to come? Well, it's the power of the resurrection and eternal life which has broken into the present through what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. You have experienced this power, brother or sister, if you are in Christ. That you were dead in your sins, but then by the power of the resurrection, you were made alive in Christ. You've experienced a resurrection from the dead spiritually, and this resurrection power is at work within us. We have tasted eternal life. Think about how you came to faith in Christ. You were dead. You were in darkness. Someone shared the gospel with you. You were brought from darkness to light. The lights came on. God said, let there be light into your dead heart. He raised you from the dead. You started experiencing a transformation, victory over sin. All of these, the newness of life that we experience in Christ when we are converted, those are the powers of the age to come. And the author says, they've tasted that. They've experienced newness of life and freedom from sin. And so when we look at the way that the author describes these individuals, it's very clear who they are. As uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, says, I, I love what he says here, a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. Any child reading this would, would realize that. And then he goes on to say, if the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than there are here. How can a man be said to be enlightened and to taste of the heavenly gift and to be made partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God? And so friends, that's the answer to our second question. Who is the passage speaking about? It's speaking about and to true believers in Christ. True believers in Christ. We've seen what the context is, who the passage is speaking about. Question number three, what is the sin being warned against? What is the sin that is warned against? Look again at verse five. So these are people who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. I think that's better translation, translated if they fall away, to restore them again to repentance 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the sin that is here being warned against is falling away. If they fall away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. Now, uh, there is again a different view here on this uh, verse and what the sin is. Uh, this is coming more from the free grace tradition. All right, people in the free grace tradition, uh, they will concede that verses 4 and 5 refers to Christians, just like I showed you. But then they will say, well, once saved, always saved. True, a, a, a Christian cannot lose their salvation. And therefore, what is being warned against here is not being fall, falling away, but leading a fruitless and wandering life. That's the way they'll take this text. All right, so it's, it's kind of like living like a carnal Christian or a Christian who just keeps on living in sin and they won't lose their salvation, but they'll have a fruitless life. And I want to submit that that interpretation from the free grace tradition is, is not only unpersuasive, but it's deeply, deeply problematic. All right? We find uh, no concept in the New Testament of someone who is really saved and then just keep on living apart from Christ and be guaranteed of their salvation. That, that's just not there in the Bible. All right? Uh, I find that unpersuasive. And again, the text makes that clear, right? That this is not talking about a fruitless life. Look, at, look again at what it says. It says, it is impossible, verse 4, and then jump to verse 6. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Friends, to repent is how you become a Christian. Repentance is the mark of the Christian life, of a Christian's life. And so if we say that they're not being able to be restored to repentance, then it means that they are no longer a Christian. Furthermore, look at what it says. It says they are crucifying. Why can't they be restored to repentance? Because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's heavy language. That's not just talking about living a fruitless life. That's talking about nailing Jesus to the cross again and putting Him to shame. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's own Son. He died on the cross, shed His blood poured out his blood as the perfect sacrifice to save us from our sins. He died as the penalty for sinners. And if you turn away from him and abandon him, then you're saying he is not the son of God. And you're saying his death is worthless and accomplished nothing. And essentially you, were saying, you would be saying that what happened to him under the Roman rule, he deserved. He was just a common criminal who deserved to be put to shame and, and hang naked on the cross and die and be executed. That's what it means to crucify once again the Son of God and to put Him to shame. By not expressing faith in Christ, you're saying His death is worthless. And so the sin that is being warned against here is clearly the sin of departing from faith in Christ, of falling away from the faith. In fact, the word there used for falling away everywhere in the New Testament means just what it means. It means falling away, plunging headlong into destruction. And so we've answered our third question. We've seen what the context is. We've seen who the passage is speaking about. We've seen what the sin is that is being warned against. And now our fourth question. 
What is being threatened as the consequence? What is being threatened as the consequence? Again, some interpreters from the free grace tradition that I just mentioned, like I said, they concede that this is speaking about Christians, but then again, then again they want to say, well, once saved, always saved. And so the sin that it's talking about is not apostasy or falling away, it's just living a fruitless life. And then they'll say, so the judgment that it's speaking of is not the judgment of eternal punishment, rather, it is the judgment of just losing some rewards. You'll definitely go to heaven, but you will just lose some rewards in heaven. And again, what I want to say is that is, a, that is unconvincing, unpersuasive, and actually deeply problematic. Because it lulls people into some sense of false security that just because I prayed this prayer or just because I uh, was baptized or whatever, I can live however I want in sin right now and I'm, I'm safe. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'll be fine. Maybe I'll just lose some rewards. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is a wrong interpretation of this text. And again, what these free grace interpreters are doing is forcing their interpretation, forcing their theology into the text. No, the consequences that are being threatened here are eternal judgment, eternal punishment. Notice what the text is saying. It says, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. There's no coming back. You've reached the point of no return. You're done. And look at verses 7 and 8. Look at the contrast in verses 7 and 8 between blessing and curse. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. That's talking about the final blessing, eternal life, heaven, heaven's reward. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. It says you've become worthless. It says that the end is a, that, that there's a curse that is coming. This is the curse of the wrath of God. And the end is burning. Friend, I think that's talking about hell. That's talking about the eternal fire of judgment and punishment under the wrath of God for all eternity for those who are apart from Christ. It's not just talking about some loss of rewards. And so we've answered our four questions. Let's summarize again. What is the context? The context is that the author is speaking to Christians who have become sluggish in their faith, who have begun to be tempted to turn away from Christ, who are going backwards in their faith, to living in immaturity and infancy. Who is the text speaking about? We've seen it is speaking about those who have been enlightened, uh, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who are sharers in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's speaking about true Christians, true born-again believers. What is the sin being warned against to these Christians? Well, they are being warned against apostasy. In other words, being warned against falling away from the faith, turning away from Christ. If they continue in sluggishness, they will fall away. And what is being threatened as the consequence? Well, the consequence is a curse and burning. It is facing the judgment of eternal punishment under the wrath of God if you're apart from Christ. 
So if we were to summarize all that, we would say the passage here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, is warning true Christians who have grown sluggish and are in danger of falling away from Christ. It's warning them, it's warning us, that you will face the consequence of eternal judgment and punishment if you turn away from Christ. Remember last week the urgency, the importance of pressing on toward maturity in the Christian life, not staying immature, not going back to the ABCs. Well, this warning follows from that. If they don't press on to maturity, if you continue in sluggish immaturity, it will lead to falling away from the faith. Falling backwards in your faith will ultimately lead to falling away. And if you abandon your faith in Jesus, there will be no return. You will face eternal judgment and hell. So that leads then to a major, massive theological question, doesn't it? If the passage is warning true Christians against the danger of falling away and saying you'll face judgment if you fall away, then the question we have to ask is, well, can true believers lose their salvation? And many friends and respected Bible teachers from the Wesleyan or Arminian tradition would say, absolutely, yes, you can lose your salvation. Just look at what Hebrews 6 says. Why would that warning be there? If, if you can't lose your salvation. Well, I'm not persuaded of that interpretation. And I'm not convinced that that is the case. Dear friends, I believe that the Bible is internally coherent. Uh, one part of the Word of God does not contradict other parts of the Word of God. It is completely consistent. And I think there are a number of passages throughout the New Testament that are fully and completely clear in telling us and showing us that our salvation belongs to God and that we are secure in His hands. He is the one who saved us, who acted to save us, and He is the one who will keep us. Just think of what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Listen to how clear our Lord Jesus Christ is. He says this, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or you can think of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is secure by the power of the omnipotent God and guaranteed by His unbreakable promises, as we will see more next week. If you are in Christ, your eternal destiny is guaranteed and established by the perfect high priestly work of the spotless Son of God Himself, whoever lives to intercede for us, who makes intercession for us even now, and will save to the uttermost all who hold on to Him in faith. 
And so from the entire witness of the New Testament, and even from Hebrews, as we'll see in Hebrews 6 to 10, it's very clear, all true believers will persevere to the end. If you are truly a believer in Christ, you will persevere till the end. In fact, I can say God Almighty will preserve you till the end. We don't ultimately rely on who we are or who we are not or what we did or what we didn't do. We ultimately, ultimately rely on Jesus, the Son of God, on who He is and what He has done. And He has done it all. He has done everything necessary to preserve us. So true believers in Christ cannot and will not fall away. But then you have another question. If true believers cannot and will not fall away, then why does God, by the Holy Spirit, in His inspired word, give a warning like this to true believers? Why does the text speak about true believers and say, if they fall away? Why do you have, the, why do you have that if there, if it's the case that we cannot ultimately fall away? Well, the answer to that question is that God puts these warnings in His word according to his excellent and wise purposes. He gives us these warnings so that we will not fall away. He uses these warnings to keep us from falling away. The Lord preserves us from falling away by using these warnings and by showing us that if we fall away, we would be without hope. And God's word always accomplishes God's purposes. So in the lives of true believers, these warnings always work. And so you obey the warnings. And so we see, as we read the Bible, there are two things that are true at once, and we must hold them both together. On the one hand, all true believers in Christ are safe and secure in the hands of the Lord, and God will preserve you to the end. On the other hand, all true believers must be warned against departing from Christ. And God uses these warnings to keep you in the faith. I mean, isn't that the way warnings actually function? Think about how warnings work in general in life. So imagine you enter this room, and on the table in the center of the room, you see this ominous-looking bottle with some kind of black liquid in it, and there's a label on the bottle. And the label has the skull and crossbones. And it says, warning, do not drink, fatal. And then you have a friend there. And your friend tells you, that bottle is filled with poison. Don't drink it, because if you drink it, you will die. You're not going to go there and pick up the bottle and have a swig. Right? The warning works. The purpose of the warning is to keep you from drinking that bottle. And unless you're out of your mind, you're not going to be drinking that bottle. What does the warning do? It prevents you from drinking the bottle and prevents you from dying. Or think about a, a railroad crossing. When you drive up to the railroad crossing and then all of a sudden you see the X is there and then the alarm starts going off, ding, 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 and the red lights start flashing. And, and some railway crossings, they have this, this barricade that comes down. What does that mean? That means a train is coming. Don't try to cross here. Because if you try to cross, you will die. And again, what does that warning do? What, how does it work? It prevents you 
from making the foolish error of crossing over. Or think about this, maybe you go hiking. Imagine going on a hike, going on uh, an exploratory trip up in the mountains, maybe in Ras Al Khaimah, and you're walking with a guide and maybe with a group, and you're walking up in the mountains, and uh, suddenly you see this kind of ominous-looking edge, and, and, and there's a sign over there that says, Danger! Precipitous drop! Fatal! And then the guide says, Don't go, go near that ledge, because it's very dangerous. If you fall down, you will die. What does that sign and the guide's words do to you? What, how does it work in your life? Well, it keeps you walking on the path, staying safely away from the ledge. And you would be very, very foolish if you go out to the ledge there and, and you know, try to balance and, and, and test it. You're not going to do that because you've just heard the warning. Friends, that's how warnings work. In the same way, once again, Spurgeon says this. I love what he says. In the same way, God says, My child, if you fall over this cliff, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me, hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. The warning leads the believer to a greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed, and he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. So God's word accomplishes God's purposes, and the warning works in the lives of all true believers to preserve you in the faith, to keep you walking on the path away from that dangerous ledge. Now, after hearing all this, you might have one other question. You might say, well, what about, you know, I had this friend or I knew this person who actually, you know, they, uh, they were expressing faith in Christ. They showed so much zeal initially. Uh, they prayed this prayer or they even got baptized. Uh, they were evangelizing others even. And then they got entangled in some sin and eventually departed and now they don't believe in Jesus anymore. What about those people? Well, in that case, we would say those people were never truly saved in the first place. If you're truly a believer in Christ, the warning always works to keep you on the path. Those who ignored the warning and turned away were not truly saved. They were not true believers. They never really had true faith. Maybe they gave some signs or some false fruit but that was deceiving. And just like Jesus says on Judgment Day, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Did we not do these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the case of those who maybe showed some initial signs of fruit and turned away. But this passage is not talking about them. This passage is talking to true believers and telling us, be cautious. It's urging us and warning us, stay on the path there will be danger if you turn away from Christ. And so, dear friends, as we apply this to our own hearts and lives, we are to examine our hearts. We are to examine our lives, all of us, me included. We are to take caution not to continue in sluggishness, not to continue in immaturity, to press on in faith in Jesus. Think of verses 7 and 8 again and this contrast here. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Friends, this land is depicting the life of believers. God pours out on us regularly the refreshing rain of His good word in the preached word week after week as we read our Bibles. He's blessed us with the gift of His Holy Spirit dwelling within us, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He's given us His own Son who died on the cross, who shed His blood, who was torn and put to death to save us from our sins. He's watered your life with His Holy Word. Now, is your life marked by fruit? Is your life producing a crop that is useful, that brings glory to God? Is your life marked by a love for God's name and by hope in God's promises? What is the fruit that ought to mark a Christian's life? I mean, we'll see this more next week, but it's very clear in verse 10, where he says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The love that we have for God's name is shown by serving the saints, by loving one another, by committing to the local church, by serving the church and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ in a committed, sacrificial relationship. That's how you display your love for God's name. That's how you show fruit. Loving and serving other Christians, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ and the great commandment. And so, if we are truly walking with the Lord, we would be marked by an earnestness of holding on in hope to Jesus and loving our brothers and sisters, our fellow believers. I want to speak to non-Christians here for a minute. If you're here and you have never trusted in Christ, if He's not your Lord, your Savior, well, I can't warn you against falling away uh, because you have nothing to fall away from. You are not a Christian in the first place. But there's still a warning for you in this text. There's still a warning for you in this text. You see, this text says that apart from Christ, there is no hope. There will be the curse of the wrath of God and there will be the fire of eternal judgment there will be a burning in hell for our sins apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is holy. He is our creator. He is the almighty, glorious creator God and he is holy and righteous and just. And we are his creatures who owe to him our worship, our allegiance, our trust and our worship. But we have failed and fallen short. We come into this world sinful and all of us have gone astray. Despite God's goodness to us, all we have borne is thorns and thistles, not good fruit. All of us are rotten and deserve God's judgment, deserve eternal punishment for our sins. But God has been gracious to us in that He sent His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified who shed His blood as the perfect sacrifice, bearing upon Himself the penalty for the sins of all those who would repent and trust in Him. He died on the cross, taking upon Himself 
the curse, the judgment that we deserve, so that if we repent, turn away from our sins, and trust in Him, we receive eternal life, the heavenly gift of salvation from our sins. So if you're here, dear non-Christian friend, I want to warn you against the judgment that is coming, and I want to call you to turn away from your sins today and trust in Jesus with a true heart. Don't neglect what I'm saying. Come to Christ. And once again to my brothers and sisters here, members of ECC, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to warn you again. This passage warns us with earnestness. It calls us to examine ourselves. I urge you, dear friends, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out. Beware. Don't remain sluggish. Don't lapse into immaturity. No, press on forwards in hope towards maturity. Don't fall away. Because if you fall away, there will be no return. You know, many years ago, I was a seminary student, and uh, while we were in seminary, we used to, uh, some of our students used to reach out uh, to some Nepali families who were living in an apartment complex uh, quite near to us. And several of the uh, Nepalis were uh, students in college. And so these were young men, and you know, we would invite them to barbecues, and we would play sports with them, and we would share the gospel with them. We were regularly trying to share the gospel with these uh, Nepali uh, college students. And on the way to their apartment, there was this railway crossing. Uh, and uh, this particular railway crossing uh, did not have uh, one of those barricades that goes up and down. It had a warning and alarms that a train was coming, but not the barricade. And one day, uh, four of these Nepali students were in a car, and they were going somewhere. And as they approached the railway intersection, uh, the, the lights began to flash. The red lights started blinking. The alarms started going off loud, ding, 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 ding. And it was clear the train is coming, the train was approaching. And they decided to just try and quickly make it across the intersection, even despite the warning. And the train hit the car. And someone was capturing this on video. It was uploaded on the news. The train rammed into the vehicle, and the vehicle was carried forward another one mile, utterly, utterly destroyed mangled beyond recognition. Friends, hear the warnings of the word of God and obey them because otherwise there will be judgment to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word by which you warn us. We recognize that we are prone to wander and Lord, we feel it. And so we pray, take our hearts, seal our hearts, keep us in the love of Christ by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name.